Welcome to Mediation Today, a program brought to you by Vesnatsa Tichanin, a Canberra lawyer and mediator. Every episode introduces an experienced Australian mediator to talk about mediation training, development, ethics and practice. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ACT land, the Ngunnawal people. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Mediation Today. In today's program, my guest is Rianne Williams, a Canberra-based dispute management service provider. Hello, Rianne, and welcome to my program. Hello, Vesna, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be interviewed on your program today. Rianne provides a variety of services through her firm based in Canberra, and they include mediation, facilitation, dispute system design, thought partnering, and research services. Rianne, your website is designed to take the visitor through an outline of your specialty service areas, provision of direct client service, workshops, delivery, blog about travels with a triangle, as well as an outline of recent projects, notably focusing on leadership and cultural safety. I'm so looking forward to explore your services and your philosophy in this interview. You have been in this field for some years now. Would you please tell us about your beginnings and when you decided to start your own business in the areas of mediation, facilitation and conflict management? Thank you, Vesna. I have been in this field for a very long time now. It's sobering to realise how long, in fact. Uh, How I got started, though, was I was working as a volunteer at the Wilderness Society. And this was in the late the late 1980s when there was a lot of disputes between environmentalists and loggers, particularly around the logging of the old growth forests in the southeast. And I was working as a volunteer in the Wilderness Society shop and somebody came in to buy a present for their mother. And I convinced them to buy this rather beautiful, extraordinarily extravagant pink sweatshirt, which had these um, major Mitchell uh, galahs painted on it. And they came back a week later and said, oh, you were right. That was such the perfect present for my mother. (laughs) And I said, no, never mind about that. Let me tell you about this thing I've heard about, which is called mediation. Because I'd had the opportunity to attend a seminar that was being presented by Susan Carpenter, who's written a book called Managing Public Policy Disputes, published by Jossie Bass, which is an extraordinary expose, or not expose, explanation of the way that mediation can be used in public policy disputes, which is primarily the area of my practice. And that idea of that very often government decision-making processes involve consultation, so getting different points of view, and then government actually then arbitrate and decide what they think the right answer is. But Susan Carpenter talked about building processes that brought all the diverse stakeholders together to then get them to negotiate with one another what an appropriate solution and outcome might be, recognising that the wisdom is in those people who have a shared interest in resolving that dispute rather than government picking winners or losers. So I'd been so inspired by this um, presentation that I heard by Susan Carpenter that I was like, right, this is what I want to be. I want to be a mediator. How do I become a mediator? And so I, as I continue to do my entire life, whenever I find something that I'm passionate about, I tell everyone about it. And so this person who came back to tell me that the sweatshirt had been really popular with his mother, I said, no, that's wonderful, but let me tell you about this thing called mediation. And he, interestingly enough, was actually on the board of the 
then yet to be established conflict resolution service which was running its first training course and he said you should apply to be a mediator and I was in my very early 20s and I was like oh wow that's amazing this was meant to be and so I trained as a mediator with the conflict resolution service and actually did the very first mediation and the very first facilitation that the service did when it opened and that was some 20 plus years ago (laughs) it was more like 30 plus years ago so but that's very kind of you <laughs> and in fact, when I worked there, I um, so I then uh, was appointed to the position of uh, coordinating Resolve, which was the youth mediation service. But I used to get introduced as the youth meditation worker from the conflict revolution service. Oh so, my goodness gracious! <laughs> so one of the things that I've seen in my um, my work in mediation over the years has been that now everyone knows the term mediation, but back then people thought. It was media, It was meditation. And so it was very, uh, we would often have neighbours ring up and say, if you think I'm coming for a meditation with my neighbour. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you know what? Recently I had a guest who was uh, laughing around, you know, people saying medication, meditation, mediation. And I mean, like, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I was the youth meditation, meditation worker with the Conflict Resol- Revolution Service. <laughs> and my boss at the time was the medication coordinator with the conflict revolution wow, service that's so, really interesting <laughs> i mean look that sounds spooky it, <laughs> but it's come a lot well it obviously hasn't come as far as i thought it had <laughs> <laughs> but what did actually inspire you to go for that first presentation why did you go ah well because at the time what was happening in the southeast forests were that environmental activists were blockading the forests mm-hmm. to stop the logging And one of the things that um, the loggers did, because their employment obviously depended on it, they would come and they were blockading the Wilderness Society shop. So it was kind of a tit for tat. Mm. And so I thought there has to be a better way of dealing with this. And so Susan Carpenter's uh, seminar was advertised as an environmental mediation. And I thought, wow, let me find out more about that. And in fact, she talked about a dispute in Washington State, which involves logging of old growth forests. And the critical aspect of that was that if the logging stopped, not only would people lose their jobs, but also a percentage of the logging funds went into the the school system. So schools would close. Mm. But it was also some of the most beautiful and last remaining old growth forest in the area. And she talked about a process that took 12 months to get agreement as to who would be at the table. But at the end, they reached outcomes that satisfied the environmentalists, that kept the schools open and kept people's jobs. And so one of the things for me was that I think there's been this artificial um, conflict that's been created between If you're for the environment, you're against the economy. Or if you're for the economy, you're against the environment. Or if you're a working person, don't trust those, you know, greeny latte drinkers because they don't care about your jobs. But I actually think that we, when groups come together, amazing solutions emerge because people realise we care about the same things. We want a good environment for those we care about. We care about the species that we share this world with. We care about our own survival, which is, you know, certainly 30 years ago, the climate change was something that many people were saying, look, we've got to be paying attention to it. And we haven't been paying attention. But 
one of the things that when we bring people together, astonishing solutions are possible. Yes, and that was exactly what was going through my mind when you initially were talking about government bringing relevant people. It happens only if you bring around that table the right people and you don't pick and choose. Exactly. And and one of the things, so in the work that I do very often, uh, the challenge with government in the large public policy stuff is that they do want to set limits. Oh, no, we don't want those people. They're difficult. Or we don't want those people because they're a bit extreme. And it's like what you want is everyone in the room working together on the problem. And they'll strike the balance. Yeah, yes. because then, and as you would know as a mediator yourself, people have skin in the game if they're part of making that agreement. Mm. And if I've put my, um, my, my beliefs and my abilities and my strengths behind building that agreement, I'm, I'm gonna going work to really, work exactly yeah, towards it. <laughs> I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it succeeds. This is yeah. a wonderful first part of our discussion or interview. Tell me, what's your first song? Ah, my first song is actually by Busby Maru, which is a uh, duo from Rockhampton, which is where I grew up in central Queensland. Um, and the song is is called Wage a War, which I thought was a really um, great song to, to for this particular interview because it's about conflict and mediation. And they're talking about, in the song, stopping before you wage a war and mediation is about really for me it's about transforming relationships where people are waging war on one another into finding a way of waging a war on the problem Mm. but actually standing side by side and working together before it escalates beyond return exactly our guest in mediation today is rianne williams a canberra mediator and it's not just the mediation that you are doing tell us about your services tell us what do you do to bring people together and then send them home happy (laughs) i do a range of things and i guess like many uh small business owners diversification is the key but all of the work that i do is around either supporting people to resolve disputes to think differently about the way they might deal with difficult circumstances or situations and also I do research that promotes an awareness of the sorts of benefits that are associated with good dispute resolution processes. So I have programs where I work with um, two economists so Emeritus Professor Anne Daly and Greg Barrett and we've done cost-benefit analysis of mediation services so we did initially a piece of work together on the Yundamu Mediation and Justice Committee which found for every dollar that was invested in peacemaking there was $4.15 in benefits returned. And that's an an outstanding return because the World Bank says if you're getting a like a $2 return, it's a brilliant investment and you should just take, you should just invest everything you can in it. So $4.50 in a local peacemaking initiative that is delivered by the Walpri people themselves in Yundamu is delivering one of the best returns to government on investment. Uh, and Rian, would that be published anywhere? It that is. Research? It oh, is. Could you give us details? Yeah, or? very happy to provide the Good. links to that. Excellent. And that actually then in, um, inspired the Mornington Island Restorative Justice Unit, which is another mediation unit, to do a cost-benefit and analysis of their work and they are very active in keeping people out of prison so that's their specific brief and the research found for every dollar that's invested in their services $11 in benefits is returned which is once again a staggering number. So I do a range of services that are about promoting to people the idea that if we use alternative dispute resolution services not only does it deliver us good return on the on the investment but it also can transform the experiences of people in dispute. For 20 years, one of the other partnerships that I've had has been with 
originally it was with the Foundation for Australian Agricultural Women, um, is now with Australian Women in Agriculture. So with that, I've been travelling around the country, working in rural and remote and regional communities, delivering workshops for women on leadership and dispute management and facilitating conversations. And one of the things that's been really powerful about doing that work has been there's been a commitment to ensuring that there are both Indigenous and non-Indigenous women who attend the workshops. And one of the workshops that I facilitated was in Cardwell in far north Queensland with the Girrigan Elders Reference Group. And that's an Aboriginal uh, organisation. And it was the very first time that they had ever invited non-Aboriginal people to attend something that they had actually presented. And so one of the things in relation to the that workshop was that these people lived in the same community, knew one another, but actually hadn't had the opportunity to sit down and talk to one another. And when they did, they discovered that they had so much more in common than what they thought and and certainly far less than, than divided them. The other thing that I also do is before COVID. So COVID has changed my practice a little, but one of the things that I used to do before COVID was offer free lecture programs through the um, ACT libraries. So I'd offer a lunchtime seminar and I also run trauma-informed training and I also run cultural safety training. And the cultural safety training emerged from work that I did in South Australia. I was the process advisor to the South Australian Comprehensive Process for the Settlement of Native Title. And I'm really proud of that work. So I worked with the process for seven years as the process advisor. And my job was, this was in the early 2000s, was to support creating a transformative way of negotiating native title. And that involved building relationships between the different stakeholders. So the mining representatives, the the chamber of the South Australian Local Government Association and various other stakeholder groups. And one of the things that was extraordinarily powerful that emerged from that is that in every other jurisdiction in Australia, when the federal court had made a finding of for native title, it had been appealed to the high court. In South Australia, as a result of the transformative process that was about building relationship between people, when the federal court handed down the decision to recognise native title, the decision was by all the stakeholders, we will not appeal this to the High Court. We will continue to negotiate. We accept this decision. We accept that we will work together and we accept that we How have How did it feel? That, that sounds amazing. It was, it was an extraordinary process to be part of. Um, one of the things that was extraordinarily humbling was one of the first meetings I remember going to where I was advising about um, setting up the process was held in um, Cooper Pedy. And I just remember sitting in the room and there was an amazing woman by the name of Mona Tur who was working as the interpreter. And Mona was an extraordinary woman. And at one point, I remember the Attorney General saying to Mona, he was giving a speech and Mona would pause him and then interpret what he'd said and finally the Attorney General not many people are experienced in working with interpreters and he said to Mona could you just wait until I finished and just give people the gist of it and I remember Mona sitting there saying Mr Attorney General what you have to say is very important the people have come to listen they need to hear it they need to understand and Mr Attorney General you will wait while I interpret (laughs) She was wonderful and I felt so humbled to be in, you know, in the room where the language that was being spoken was 60,000 years old. Mm. And the other thing that that, that involved was actually in Yankun Jajara, there was no word for negotiation. 
So the interpreters and everybody had to work out because it was being interpreted, what is the right word? And so the word that people came up with was Napaji Napaji Alanji, which means talking together in the right way, which I thought is a beautiful, beautiful way of... Isn't it just a definition of mediation, of what we do? Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Rianne, I would just like to bring back that term cultural safety. What is that? So cultural safety uh, actually emerged in New Zealand. It was something that was developed um, by nurses and particularly Maori nurses. And the idea of cultural safety is that a person can go to a service and there will be no assault on their identity, that they feel welcomed, in other words, that who they are when they walk through the door of a health service or a legal service or any service, they feel that I am welcomed here, that these people here can help me, will assist me, understand me and want to support me. We need so much more of that. Yes, yes, we do. And the interesting thing about the way, so the cultural safety training that I collaborated with some Indigenous colleagues and we developed a program that was being accredited by the Royal Australian College of General Practice and the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine. And we've run that program for doctors and nurses and other health professionals. And the feedback has been wonderful in that what people have said is that this is This has given me a a much greater understanding of how to work effectively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But the principles of working in a culturally safe way actually mean that we will be benefiting everyone. And that's my sense of with the work that that I do, I want the work to transform the landscapes that people are working in so that in fact everyone feels that what they have to say will be valued and what they have to contribute will be respected. When I worked with the Conflict Resolution Service um, back in the day, we had a large panel of um, mediators from culturally and linguistically diverse communities and we worked regularly with interpreters. And one of the things that I would agree... So I'm Welsh. I was born in Wales, came to Australia when I was three. And as with Aboriginal people, and I'm sure with many other people for whom their language is not the first language of the country that they're in, there was a very famous court case in Wales where a Welsh man was sentenced to prison. He didn't speak any English. He didn't have a lawyer who spoke any Welsh. And the entire court proceedings were conducted in English. And he was innocent, but he was still sent to jail because the entire process was conducted not in his language. And so that is often the same for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in remote communities. So the role of interpreters in ensuring that the process is fair is absolutely essential. One of the things in relation to the South Australian process that I had to do was work with the technical experts who are presenting information. And technical experts they were used to having a three-hour presentation and then 10 or 15 minutes of questions. And I said, you, have, you have, can have a 15-minute presentation. We will then have three hours of discussion in the, the various languages that were there and you will take questions. And that one of the things in relation to mediation that's truly transformative is people learning to listen to other people. And very often with technical experts, they think, I have all this wisdom that I'm going to throw at you. And once you've got it, then it's all fine. They don't necessarily build in those feedback loops that find out how has their expertise been understood. So one of the trickiest negotiations I had with the technical experts was getting them to go, but I can't deliver my three-hour presentation in 15 minutes. Well, if you can't, then how will we get through all of the information we need to get through? Because people, it's not just enough to say it. People need time to discuss it and consider it and ask questions. And that was a transformative process in and of itself. Mm, That sounds really impressive. And I'm sure that uh, 
through all your experiences and I'm listening through all the various projects and, and programs that you've been involved in and ways of delivering your services, there would be some golden nuggets of messages and wisdom and, and learnings that you yourself have acquired, but also it would be great to hear and pass it on to our younger colleagues. Younger? by practice or by age. <laughs> so I'll, I will get to that in a minute. But before that, could you please tell us with all this business, and we do have a limited time in this program, of course, how do you keep your energy levels up? How do you manage running a business? How do you do it? What helps you? Uh, well, I, I love what I do. So I'm privileged enough to be able to do work that I find really interesting and where there's a lot of diversity in what I do. The work that comes to me comes through word of mouth, so people recommend my services to others, so that's really nice. One thing that I would say is it's always really good to, I'm not particularly good at IT, so I have a fabulous IT person, so if things go wrong with my computer or my phone, I've got someone who can fix things. So I think it's really good to know what your strengths and expertises are and play to those, and then particularly if you're a very small business or a sole practitioner, build in those sorts of supports. The other thing that I think is really important is make sure that you have a life. So do things that you enjoy and that fill your cup. And one of the things for me, so there's a number of things that are really important for me. One of the things that I think actually made me a better mediator was about 12 years ago, I started investigating the science of happiness. And I uh, now run programs that actually look at happiness and well-being and so introducing a number of those practices into my managing both my professional and my personal life has been quite transformative so those are things like making sure you have regular exercise keeping a gratitude diary being having practices that make sure that you're present in your everyday so regularly I make sure I walk my dog regularly I also the other thing that I do that's really important is I have a creative passion so I've just had my first children's picture book published this year Ooh, tell us about it in a few <laughs> words it's called 10 little figs and it's about a little child who's observing a fig tree and there are 10 little figs and they love figs and they're hoping they're all for them but a different Australian animal comes along and at the end of the day there's only one fig left but there is a happy ending <laughs> oh great Rianne it was lovely to have you and to have this wonderful chat. Would you be happy to come back one day and then talk more about some particular achievements and pro projects that you particularly enjoyed? I would love to come back, Vesna. Thank you so much for the invitation today. Dear listeners, this was Rianne Williams, a mediator from Canberra, and has her fingers in many other things, even in figs. <laughs> I will be with you next Monday at the same time. All the best. Take care. Bye. Bye. Uh -huh.